Welcome. I'm Anna. And I'm Chanel Constance. And you're listening to Ebony Musings. This literary podcast was created to provide a safe place for Black women to discover wellness, balance, and self-care through literature. Join us in conversation as we dive deep into the importance of self-care, balancing our lives, and how literature has played a big part in our own personal healing processes. Let the journey begin. Listener's note, this episode contains spoilers. Welcome, I'm Anna. And I'm Chanel. And on today's episode, we are continuing our discussion on Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage by Dr. Diane M. Stewart. If you missed part one of this discussion, be sure to check it out before proceeding with this episode. With that being said, let's dive in. So, the widows. Mm-hmm. They're lying about, mm-hmm. um, the, about their pension. Okay, so she says here that most problematic for Black women and Blacks as a whole, the federal government's pension administration tended to view them, the widows, as frauds and schemers who deserve layers who deserve added layers of scrutiny and policing that white petitioner generally did not face. So even like if they served, you know, during the, during the war, the widows, the black widows could even get the the pension. Right. Which is wrong. And she kind of goes into, she breaks down, you know, how it happened. She says that roughly 40,000 black soldiers died in the civil war most from infection and disease, leaving a greater number of honorably discharged Black veterans, disabled or not, with the prospect of supporting their families through federal pension funds as at the last decade of the 19th centuries. For those who died, however, surviving widows still had the right to claim pension benefits, but they really didn't make it easy for them. Right, I was going to say, they had to jump through hoops, and most times they didn't get it. If they did, they probably got way less than what they were actually told they would get. So now we're going from going from slavery to lynching. So she states that during the last quarter of the 19th century, lynching replaced the whip in the wide repertoire of primitive technologies white Americans had designed to desecrate Black bodies while enforcing the customs of white supremacist democracy. So... I wanted, I wanted to go over Mary Turner's lynching, mm-hmm. which was really, this is probably the, the thing that I really remember from this book. So Mary was 33 and her husband's name was Hazel Turner and they were residents of Brooks County, Georgia. And um, they were living um, on a farm. Mm-hmm. And, the pers- and they both worked for Claude Hampton Smith. And he purchased usually cheap and exploitable labor at the local jail by paying fines for black convicts. And then subsequently, the parolee would be forced to work on Smith's farm to reimburse them. After the war, you know, white farmers became very slick and they tricked, um, they, they tricked black people into back into slavery again. Right. So her husband was placed on a chain gang 
only to be released back into Smith's abusive employer by the end of his sentence. They wanted to fight back, mm-hmm. so they they um they develop a plot with other black laborers to kill the white boss before he killed them. Right. They planned everything at Hayes and Mary Turner's home. On the day of the ambush, the black laborers went to the Smith's home and they started shooting and a bullet struck Smith, killing him instantly, which is the the farm owner. Right. And then his wife immediately fled the home and fell into the hands of the assailants. So Smith's wife survived the attack and she named Sidney Johnson and Julius Jones as her assailants. Uh, these were two men that worked on her husband's farm. Um, an angry white mob was out for blood and Hayes Turner was accused of being an accomplice in killing this white farmer. Sidney Johnson confessed to it and he was killed during a shootout with the cops. Um, when the news reached the white community, Turner and other black farm workers who previous worked for Smith um, were targeted and accused of this conspiracy. Ultimately, Hayes Turner was lynched. Um, his body was left in an intersection, um, just hanging there, two hot days, and, you know, just absolutely disgusting. So Mary voiced her outrage over her, over her husband's murder, and she wanted to bring the perpetrators to, to justice. Unfortunately, they didn't like that, so... There was a a mob that hunted her down. She was hung upside down from a tree limb. Feet was high like a tog. She was doused with oil and gasoline, set on fire while still alive to feel a knife slicing her room so that her unborn baby, who was only one month shy of a natural birth, would be delivered. And then after they did all that, the baby fell out of the womb and a mobster lifted his boost and smashed the infant's head. And then she said, and then the orgy climax with the raging, basically, after they did all that, after she was dead, they didn't shot her many times to make sure that she was dead. And like burning her wasn't enough. Like right. her, sto- her stomach out wasn't enough. Crazy. Right. And it says that this lynching symbolized. It symbolically murdered Black love and marriage, depriving the two Turner children of parental nurturance and refuge. Perhaps they could at least take comfort in discovering that their mother lost her life in defense of Black love and defense of her husband, their father, whose innocence of any wrongdoing related to to Claude Hampton's Hampton's Smith death, she steadily upheld until her last breath. She said in some regions, white terrorists went so far as to target Black love and marriage directly, like while during the infamous two-day 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma riots, mm-hmm. the white white people demolished a central site of Black love and romantic life, which was basically a... Um, Black Wall Street. Yeah, Black Wall Street. It was like a popular hangout for the young. And there was more proposals for marriage that happened at the popular sort of fountain other than any other parts in the city. Mm. She says this depriving black couples of community owned intimate spaces to court and delight in the pleasures of romantic love was ruthless enough. 
However, robbing Black victims post-mortem of the bodily sovereignty and integrity that death can be said to grant those most degraded in life constituted a theft of unspeakable proportions. It's just not enough that we can be happy and and, and live our own lives, right? The moment they yeah. see it, it, it's not right to them. We shouldn't be happy. We should be miserable. But y'all don't want us here. So why can't we be happy with our own? So um, in the third chapter, this is basically talking about welfare, the welfare system, and how it broke up families in general, if they were married, if, especially if they were unmarried. Mm-hmm. Um, this chapter basically talks, it's called Love and Warfare, and it's about Johnny Tillman and the struggle to preserve poor Black families. 35 years ago, Johnny Tillman concluded that our nation's welfare program needed a complete overhaul and an entirely new foundation. She was an activist who who was on welfare and because she was on welfare and they really wasn't giving her the benefits that she needed, she decided to fight back to get the benefits that she was owed. Ever since the establishment of welfare programs during the early 20th centuries, Black women who qualify for public assistance have elicited little sympathy from the nation that for two and a half centuries had literally and figuratively milked their enslaved foremothers from sunup to sundown. So now that now that you know we've gone through slavery, we've gone through reconstruction, lynching, all that other stuff, Jim Crow, now we're getting into the welfare system. Mm-hmm. So basically um in this chapter she wrote extensively about Johnny Tillman, who like I said was a welfare activist who was on welfare. Um and she was not getting what she thought she was owed, so she decided to fight back. What is the Claudine movie about? You've never seen Claudine with Diane Carroll? Uh-uh. So Claudine basically was illustrated the structural, the structure, the structural obstacles welfare opposed to Black love and marriage and the stark reality that for millions of Black women in America at the time, Choosing marital fulfillment as the main character Claudine eventually does while losing her welfare benefits. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how the most gripping scene is when the young social worker who was white makes a surprise visit to Claudine's apartment to ensure that she is impoverished or poor for poor enough for the monthly welfare allotment. So if she found anything that was brand new or if the house was neat or if the kids were too neat, then she's like, hey, you're getting help from somewhere else. So you don't need our, um, you don't need our help, which is wrong Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like they were hiring a bunch of black people during the day. You know, the unemployment was really, really high during that day. So this movie was basically illustrating um, how, how it was how how bad the welfare system was and this starred Diane Carroll, James Earl Jones and other talented young actors this is one of my favorite movies and it's I've also even, I've never even heard of this movie before I'm like actually looking it up I'm like oh okay and then Curtis Mayfield he did the soundtrack 
And one of my favorite songs is called The Makings of You, which is on the soundtrack. It's a beautiful song. I would highly recommend anybody who's really interested in welfare and how it really affects the family to really look at that movie. The movie itself made $6 million in the box office. That's awesome. In in 1974. Yeah, it was a really good movie. She says that Mayfield's portrayal of the welfare system in his songs and the realities depicted in Clyding provide an important analytical lens for examining forbidden Black love and its impact upon many Black women through the public assistance of aid to families with independent children. I always just felt like welfare was more of the government wanting people of color because I don't want to say it was just black people but people of color to depend on them if that makes any sense that's how I always saw it kind of but also when you look at the numbers of welfare it's white people that are more on welfare than anybody else right and then she says that there's personal testimonies from Black women and children whose lives were touched by federal and state welfare programs, especially in the 1960s, indicate that Black love and marriage were adversely affected by the callous man-in-the-house suitable home and substitute father policies that played into racist tropes, emphasizing Black women presumed propensity toward promiscuity, deceitfulness, and inept mothering. This is from a from an article from the Washington Post. Mm. And she it also says that most egregious is the image of the welfare queen, a trope that gained currency during Ronald Reagan's 1976 presidential campaign and to continue to service within po- policy debates during subsequent campaigns and administrations. So, yeah. I mean, I guess I could see how that could play effect in black love because i mean growing up my parents were on on food stamps and stuff like that we were on welfare because they were farm workers they didn't make money like that but it was i just didn't as i'm reading that part i didn't see how that would um the connection to black love because Unfortunately, we were on welfare, but my parents worked so hard, both my mom and my dad, to try to, you know, make ends meet. That was just to cover the stuff that they couldn't cover. You know what I mean? Right. But I didn't, for me, I just didn't see, I mean, I can kind of see the connection, but I just don't see a true connection of the whole welfare and Black black love. And I think that's where I kind of, this, this chapter was kind of like, eh. Yeah, I um I thought she was talking more about I thought she was gonna link it to marriage, but I, I guess mm. I kind of get the link. Mm. First, I really didn't see it because you know, when you're on welfare, you can't have like a man in the house really they can't really know that you're getting help because then they would if you get they'll you just lied to us so you need we need all of our money back right so that's why a lot of women did not um get married or they had secret relationships because um it says here 
for black women loving a man and acting on that love was construed as criminal behavior since black women had to cheat on the man quote unquote the state in order to steal love and the comfortship or companionship they needed and deserved meanwhile black men were framed as criminal accomplices in the eyes of the welfare state in order to qualify for welfare mothers had to be single and unemployed with underage children to support if a recipient developed a romantic relationship with a man or got married her male consort or husband had to assume full financial responsibility for her and her and her child's children's care and well-being that she would no longer qualify for public assistance and the thing is most of the time you know this this public assistance happened once a month so if they were found out and they didn't get their you know their benefits they were kind of like ass out right right so I kind of see how it how it is a bit against marriage because um, you would you would either have to lie and say that you're not in a relationship or you would have to get married and the and the man would have to assume all of the responsibility and then even that they be they would be like oh you need to pay us back because you died because you lied right right so. Many scholars identify Daniel Moynihan's study, The Negro Family, The Case for a National Action, as the principal source that fed widespread assumptions about Black parents as either single mothers or absent fathers, and they used this document or this to, um, to build welfare policies. And Alice Walker actually did talk about this in, um, in her journals. Mm-hmm. She says that pregnancy in Black women is not necessarily pathological after all. Then you tell me about Bill Moyers and Patrick Myahan and that they have been saying bad things about Black teenage pregnancy. There was a quote that I wanted to read concerning the Daniel Moyahan report. And it's called Bound in Wedlock, Slave and Free Black Marriage in the 19th Century. This was written by Tara W. Hunter. And... Here is the quote. It says that Daniel Patrick Moyhan, then Assistant Secretary of Labor under President Lyndon B. Johnson, wrote that the root problem, quote, that the Negro family in the urban ghettos is crumbling could be laid at the doorsteps of slavery. Black family structure was warped, according to him. Slavery had produced a prevalence of female-headed matriarchal households a quote tangle of pathology in which black families in the 20th century were still ensnared a fundamental fact of the negro american family life is often reverse roles of husbands and wives wrote moyhan whereas white families were egalitarian wives dominated black families african-american family structure existed out of outside the norms of white culture which imposed a quote crushing burden on the Negro male and retarded group process, he argued. Abherent antisocial behavior in inner cities from crime to unemployment could be traced back to this weak family structure. It wasn't originally intended for discussion within the president's inner circle of advisors, but once it leaked to the public, it took on a life of its own. And it says here that although Moyhan made faulty 
historical assumptions about quote-unquote marital instability, instability among African-Americans, especially the poor, based on little, little empirical data that controversially has yet to dissipate. Um, but it says here also that by the early 1970s, they had produced abundant research so that African-American families was not a tangle of pathologies of black matriarchies. Rather, they argued, slaves had created a viable, productive, resilient families that closely re resembled the white ideal. They were mostly nuclear, male-headed households with parents and children intact. So basically, what Mohan wrote was was not correct. And because of that, because of his erroneous assumption, you know, that report has been the backbone for a lot of welfare policies. The next part we're going to discuss is Black love in captivity. And this is where I saw the connection to um, Dr. Stewart's um, theory on Black love. Um, this section they talk about um, just relationships while the other partners in incarcerated. Um, one of the stories that I found very interesting was Asha Bendali's story. With uh, Black Love and Captivity, she talks about how mass incarceration really depleted the African-American market. Through racial enslavement, racial terrorism, and welfare, they did their part to destroy Black love. But now we're getting into the prison industrial complex. So just in general, black men are incarcerated at much higher rates than any other group in the United States, even when convicted for the same crimes. There is a stat that says, or a children report that says that more black men were under correctional control in 2013, which is 1.88 million, than were enslaved in 1850. In so she basically states that enough can never be said about the impact of mass incarceration upon Black individuals, families, and communities' mental and physical health, gainful employment, housing opportunities, and educational trajectories. How does mass incarceration ruin, ruin Black love relationships? Well, it makes it very difficult when the income is only coming from the female. Right. So when we talk about um, welfare, I mean, this this is one of those situations where the male is incarcerated, the female is now the head of the household, and she can't even make ends meet because, one, the economy is crap. And they're not just feeding themselves. They could have more than one child. So it's yeah. like with these with these men being incarcerated, it's not a whole lot they can do from in prison. Right. She says that our nation's carceral facilities, jails, they actually house nearly one million black men today. One million black men. And this comes from the hundreds of thousands of black men since the Reagan administration's war on drugs basically put into practice criminal justice policy that sent disproportionate numbers of Black men to prisons with felony records beginning in the 1980s. And then she says, in some cities across this nation, up, up to 80% of Black men were being incarcerated on drug crimes by the late 1990s. And then she says, in fact, 
America's penal response to public health problems and transgenerational structural oppression, such as mental illness, drug addiction, joblessness, poverty, will elevate the national rate of incarceration in record time. Or even just like the crap that they would put men and women in prison for. Like, because when Clinton was in office, I mean, his rules about the whole three get strikes. Life, yeah, I was like, what? Black, she says that mass, mass incarceration, they ruin love relationships and affects the daily experience of those challenged by the constraints of living behind bars. And she also, and you know, it's it takes patience inner strength and flexibility to really navigate being married, being in love in the prison, in the prison just in general. Yeah, it's not an easy task because they set up these systems if you have a a loved one in prison where like if you have to call them, you have to set up a phone Mm -hmm. thing that costs a gazillion dollars and the rates are ridiculous. On top of that, you got to limit how frequently your loved one can call you. Right. And it's like, you, there starts to become a detachment because if that person isn't there, then love is lost or, you know, you, you're forced to move on because there's nothing, there's no connection anymore. When she talked about that, I saw how, yeah, this makes sense. This is a setup. Did, did you read An American Marriage? Yes, I did. So what did you think about that? Because she talks about a lot of that in here. Um... The female, I I just felt some kind of way because she knew that they were married, if I'm not mistaken, that he didn't do it. And just how everything just played out, it just didn't seem right. But I also expected her to stick by him. And I was really upset with her. I was like, you know, you knew he was um, innocent, but yet in the end, you treated him like he was guilty. You -hmm. went off and you got with his friend, excuse me, you went and got with his friend and you kind of left him behind. So then when he gets out, it's just like, you're a different person. But then as I'm reading this book, obviously when Terry wrote this book, she didn't talk about the details of like making phone calls and things like that. So it was like, as I'm reading this and understanding how the incarcerated system works and, you know, having relationships in, in that kind of situation, it just made sense how she was able to, I don't want to say she wanted to detach, but she was kind of forced to detach. Mm-hmm. So I, she made a great example using um, American marriage in this part of the book. Right, because she used a fictional story. Mm-hmm. And then we have a real story with Asha Bandeli. Uh-huh. So Asha was 23 years old when she met Rashid behind prison walls. He eventually became her husband. Um, They married in 1995, and then she gave birth to their daughter, Nia, in 2000. Um, Like, their relationship returned romantic after two years of volunteer teaching at the prison. Mm -hmm. And she says that, Asha says that she faced a new set of obstacles every time she approached the entrance to the castle, quote unquote, or the prison that housed the man that she loved. Um, she, she said that the scrutiny and exposure she had faced kind of started getting to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she endured years of um, observing. She's 
she's she endured years of inspections, interrogations, suspensions, and searches, and um, she just didn't like it at all. She also says that, well, the author says that prison policies seem to leave no place for human dignity to reside in is what ultimately disclosed a deeper truth about the human condition and about Black love and captivity. Yeah, just in case anybody doesn't know, Asha Bendeli is an author. She wrote the book called The Prisoner's Wife. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I forgot who read it about like two years ago, but they raved about it. Like, you got to read it. It's so good. It's really in-depth. And this is her memoir, memoir about this situation that she had with her now ex-husband. So um, I have definitely put this book on my list for next year because I, I, it's been on my list for a while. And I read her book called The Daughter, which is absolutely amazing. If you get a chance to read that, read that. But yeah, um, this book right here has um, high praises. So I, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to dive into that one next year. All right. And, you know, she really fought for this marriage. Like she said, um, she said, making the love feel good between them, the holy communion they shared allowed them to claim their dignity and recognize their freedom uh, under surveillance. And um, it was stated that this was worth the four-hour bus ride she regularly took to visit her husband. But it was an arrangement they would have to endure longer than they hoped. And they lost an appeal to overturn her husband's second-degree murder. And, you know, something inside of Asha broke. And um, it was just a really, really tough situation. And, um, you know, eventually she had to decide to um, to divorce. Yep, and raise her daughter on her own. And he, and he was immediately and permanently deported to his native Guyana in 2019. Sorry, 2009. I actually felt some kind of way about that. Because I just felt like she fought, and again, I haven't read the memoirs, so I don't know in all detail what she went through, but I was like, man, you fought so hard to be with this man. I mean, you went as far as to get pregnant, not, you know, purposely, but they're married, so she's allowed to have children, especially knowing her situation, you know what I mean? Because he couldn't do a whole lot from behind bars, and because of their situation, because of their distance and literally the bars that were between them they couldn't connect properly mm-hmm. and then when he when he got out i just thought she was going to be like all right now what we can do this properly even if we're in a sense starting over but i guess that whole situation just kind of worn her out yeah and it wasn't worth it to her anymore so she was just ready to move on but i, I was i just i honestly felt some kind of way at the end i was like dang man you worked so hard to be with this man and you fought for him and you went on to have his children and all this stuff and then he finally gets out why aren't you moving to his native country with him because I, I i just felt like there was nothing stopping her to move there but and like he, give up her entire life and then her her livelihood and her like her her money to move to diana she, yeah but she already did that with just marrying a man behind bars she gave up a lot. She already, I felt like she knew what she was walking into. It wasn't going to be easy. But then now that he's free and unfortunately he can't be in the U.S., I just thought, okay, she's really going to try to be with this man. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't read the memoir. So I did feel some kind of way that like that gave me the whole American marriage sense. <laughs> um so I mean, I, I, I that's why I want to read her story and just kind of get an understanding because I just I- felt like 
why wouldn't you be with him if you went that far and did so much to fight for his freedom and stuff and now that he's free that's it it's like what yeah and she states in in um in the section poor black wives financing and surviving meth incarcerations though she underwent rough financial patches including the time where she aborted her and Rashid's first pregnancy shortly after they had married Asha was college educated and a self-supporting poet and author then the author says Dr. Stewart says thousands of black women and incarcerated husbands find financial resources hard to come by it says therapists concur that financial constraints are among the principal causes of marital conflict, alienation, and disillusion. And black marriages are probably the least wealthy in the nations are over overrepresented among financially troubled and broken marriages in America. So yeah, it's it's really tough. Yeah. So and then when you have to go back home, there's also barriers to where that um you have to wear a monitoring device mm-hmm. that could easily amount to four hundred per month, and you don't have enough money to. You even have you don't even have a place to lay your head. Right. Um, sometimes, um, if you wanted to find an apartment, it would be hard because that's on your file, so they don't want to really rent out to a convict. Right. And she says that having an address, a stable place to lay one's head, an essential is an essential pathway to produce citizenship and wealth building. But because of these policies that keep, you know, convicts or former convicts from getting houses, it's really hard for them to adapt to real life outside of prison. Right. She also um, brings up that social scientists point out that the shortage of Black men in some communities has encouraged some men to develop simultaneous relationships with multiple women. And it says that beyond this, Black women seeing options disappear before them, they lower their standards and lose leverage in their relationship they do forge. And she says that Black heterosexual men know their value in the age of mass incarceration, and they have the luxury to take as much time as they want to settle down. And then she's stating, why risk in this unlimited supply of Black heterosexual women to choose around from, not to mention women of other racial ethnic backgrounds? True. And then she brings up that black heterosexual men marry outside the race twice as much as black heterosexual women, further depleting the pool of available black men for single black heterosexual women, who, as the data shows, overwhelmingly choose to marry black men. She made a valid point there. Because I don't want to say like, in a relationship, it's about race, right? But you're going to love who you love. If you're around um, Black people, you're more likely to fall in love with somebody of your own race, right? And right. vice versa. So when these men are going outside of Black women or white men or women are coming into those circles, I can see that totally happening. Well, the last chapter talks about will black women ever have it all? And she discusses Michelle Obama, Karis Rogers, and African-American shifting landscapes of love. The main, one of the, the main um, quote that I really like from the entire book, um, it states that um, 
black women do not only confront a shortage of black men, but also wrestle with internalized and interpersonal color consciousness, legacies of poverty, wolflessness, patriarchal marriage, and stereotypic tropes that render them undesirable, hypersexual, difficult, and intimidating. All that from slavery. Attentive to both black women's and men's perspectives on love and marriage, including interracial marriages, um, the final sections of this book explores these obstacles to the flourishing of Black women and Black families, identify areas of focus requiring immediate consideration in any program aimed at curtailing forbidden Black love and outtain policy recommendations and strategies that build on resilient features of Black kinship and family formation. As um, Colorism and phenotypic stratification remains a persistent discriminating factor among African Americans, not to mention other Americans. They have a great deal of power over the black marriage. And there was a study that showed that marriage actually, it shows um, a study of 1,579 black females between the ages of 16 and 29, 55% of female have been married, but only 30% of those with medium shade and 23% of the dark-skinned females have ever been married. That's crazy to me. Yeah, so all that race mix, all that stuff, it has really sad results and it really plays a part in it. I just really wish it would stop um, stop uh, denying colorism, featureism, um, texturism, all that has a has to play a part in today's marriage market. That's yep. all from slavery again. Yeah, absolutely. And it states that as as discussed in chapter one, CPS or like the you know the caste system is a Eurocentric phenomenon that idealizes white Euro Western aesthetic and cultural norms. European slaveholding settlers created CPS during the slave period. Their white descendants advanced it, and across the centuries, Black communities absorbed it and adjusted it to its ubiquitous power over their lives. Yep. So it's Stephen Clark. Remind me who Stephen Clark is again? He got shot by police, and um, I think his girl, he said some bad things about... Uh, black women? Black women. And basically, Kimberly Foster was saying that, you know, don't you shouldn't judge black women if they don't want to uh, march for him due to what he said. So to kind of see how these insults kind of kind of hurt black women and how we're supposed to kind of, it's just a really, is a really um, nuanced situation. So there is a fatal police shooting of Stephen Clark. So on March 18th, 2018 he was executed by the sacramento california police and they fired 20 shots in his direction seven of them hit his body from behind he fell into his knees and um behind his grandmother's house so as a result you know protesters wanted justice for stefan clark after his death because you know it's, it's the same old story you know a black male is being shot by a police and he really didn't need to be so unfortunately um he had 
posted some disparaging and bad remarks about black women, dark black women, as early as 2015 online on Twitter. He also shared his views with his non-black girlfriend who was of mixed race heritage who was who also posted insulting comments about black women. The response to his misogynoir has been mixed. Um, one person wrote from Twitter, this is in the article by Kimberly Foster on Huffington Post, don't tell a black woman how to feel about Stefan Clark's tweets. Black woman, here is what Stefan Clark thought about you. Stop marching, protesting for this fool that did not care about you. He would not have done the same for you. Hashtag Black Women Matter. Kimberly says that these sorts of sentiments are not rare and they are not why Clark was killed. They are, however, painful reminders that women believed to be part of our community may not want to be community with us. When faced with this fact so clearly, we are forced to consider which of our issues we will prioritize. Should we focus on police brutality or misogynal? There's room to do both. Words, while some may see the tweets as wholly irrelevant to the ongoing fight for police accountabilities, those who take offense and opt to turn their political energies elsewhere should not be demonized. And she says that Black women cannot be asked to make allowances for Black women's, black men's hatefulness in order to fight for the greater good because creating a world that offers no passes for the degradation of Black girls and women is not a neglectable goal. And with wetnesses, wellnesses, and marriageability, she says that income and wealth potential appear to be strong indicators of whether Black men feel prepared to marry. Um, but she says that even Black men who earn lucrative salaries marry less often than their white counterparts. And she also states in general that Blacks are just a few paychecks from economic instability. They have little to no inheritable wealth and often survive financial support to extended family members. She also talks about single Black mothers, about how they're, they're villainized, you know, because of Moyhan. Mm-hmm. And she says that human beings, including Black women who are single mothers, were not designed to endure loneliness and isolation. The common assertion that we are social animals is trite but true. Social exclusion and the lack of minimal connection with others, including partner love and companionship, can cause a serious problem that has deep roots in our biology. She also talks about how equal partnerships are important. Um... Communication, cooperation, loyalty, peacefulness, and kindness should be in marriage, in a healthy and enduring marriage. Um, in closing, Black women are discovering new ways of loving and supporting one another and building sisterhood through activities that enhance the pleasures of life through international travel groups, exercise teams, book clubs, expos, activities that enhance the pleasures of life and she calls these womanist practices of solidarity it helps to um, support a heals brokenness and it mitigates it mitigates the isolation through long periods of undesired singlehood um we have fashioned a womanist love language that this this um, nation must now need to learn how to speak fluently hmm. Um, and she states, she explains that Alice Walker is among the first, the first three women of African descent to coin and develop the, com the concept of womanism. 
during the late 1970s and, 19, and early 1980s and it's based on Black women's culturally and spiritually rich ways of caring for self, family, and community in a world marked by anti-Black intersectional violence and oppression. So basically, we all we got. So we just have yeah. to create a community until it's our time. And even when it, if it's not our time, you can still have a fulfilling life. Right. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope we have inspired you and help you find tools to make your life just a little bit easier. To continue this conversation, you can stay in touch with us on Instagram at Ebony Musings. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review. It would really help our show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.